0: So for the meditation, this, this session, I'll return to a couple of these citations from the tantras, from Padmasambhava. There's nothing really new there. It's approaching a little slightly different angle. Each of these citations is really a pointing out instruction. It's designed to point us right to rikpa, But of course it's hard to cut through. And the thing that is the immediate barrier to cutting through to rikpa. To that primordial ground, beyond time, is reivocation. It's more than anything else, it's reivocation. And so I have mentioned before that in terms of one's own sense of identity for this practice, that you want to release even the conventional sense of your own identity as a sentient being, even the conventional, let alone the reified, that's completely delusional. The conventional is not delusional, but... If you're still practicing from the perspective of a sentient being, then you're not practicing Vajrayana, you're not practicing Dzogchen, you're in what's called the causal vehicle. You're a sentient being and you want to be something else, namely a Buddha, and now you've got three countless eons or whatever to apply the causes to achieve that fruition, right? Whereas all of Vajrayana, and then most nakedly and, how do you say, without elaboration, is Dzogchen, where you're taking the fruition, but just nakedly without, without the visualization, the symbolism, the mantras, and the kind of the full elaboration of stage of generation, but in order to do that, number one, there has to be some sense, some at least some in, in intuition, some sense, that you're not inherently a sentient being, but then with that, if insofar as there is that insight, then you see that it, the conventional sense of being a sentient being is constructed. It's constructed. And you constructed it. Nobody did it to you. And therefore, since you constructed, you can also deconstruct. It's your choice. So this whole retreat, really, is about finding new choices. Um, when it comes to scientific materialism, this be extremely short, but to see that you can embrace science without embracing scientific materialism, you have a choice there. Many people will say, no, you don't. But in fact, you do. And so that's when I make those sometimes tirades, and I'm sure sometimes inappropriate. Um, it's to actually not give you no choice, like you have to agree with me, but rather to show you there actually is a choice. And that's why I'm drawing on these brilliant physicists to show you it's not just a hypothetical choice, it's actually something really quite practical that you can enter into. So enough of that. So to release even the conventional sense of I am, I as the observer, I as the agent, those two, or as we'll see, observer participant. You know. uh, well, in, this is now throughout Buddhism, it's everywhere in Buddhism, it is said, I've seen it so many times, uh, and that is first there's grasping to the self, to one's own self. And on the basis of that, as with this, this internal grasping, this coagulation, this sense of self, which is ever so easy to reify, then there comes, when then one kind of opens one's eyes, and then the one reifies other, you know, another person, the environment, objects, and everything else. And so the idea here is to cut that at the root, and to release even the conventional sense of self, so that when you attend to others, you're also releasing the conventional self of others as being sentient beings. It's not to say that they're not. You you don't become a Buddha just by deciding you're not, not one anymore. But by releasing the sense of I am a sentient being even conventionally, by releasing that, you allow a deeper sense of identity to come up, to emerge, to cut through. And likewise, when we turn our attention outwards uh, to release the sense of sentient being. Now, it's simply an unavoidable fact. One can rejoice in it. One can feel uneasy with it, not like it, whatever. But in Dzogchen, the role of the the relationship with the Guru is enormously important. Call it Guru, Teacher, Mentor, Lama, whatever it is. But the one who's teaching is Dzogchen. If one simply skips that and says, but I don't like that part, that's fine. But then you're not practicing Dzogchen. It's just, it's not dogma. It's just kind of, it's built in. It's, 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 it's natural. But now, as Holland has commented so many years ago, I mean decades ago, that to take the literal teachings from Tibetan Buddhism and apply that in the modern world can be extremely problematic and, and I think he might even have said catastrophic. And that is, here's the phrase, and anybody who studied classic Lamrim or Vajrayana, you'll know the phrase, whatever your guru does, see it as pure. Ever heard that one before? Well, that can be really dangerous that can give the guru carte blanche to exploit, to manipulate, gave him all kinds of behavior, said, hey, I got a free pass. I got a free pass. The teacher asked, because now whatever, I'm the guru now, so what I can get, do whatever I like, and you have to see me as pure. Well, that sounds to me like delusion, or whitewash, or just self-delusion. you know. And so it is not an authentic guru yoga practice. But those are the phrases. you know. Whatever your guru does, see it as pure, totally pure. And that's pure vision. His Holiness said, well, okay, he's not going to refute that because it's really very much part of the teaching. But but he gave a lot of nuance to it, and I won't simply quote him here. I want to apply something here, though, that um, I've never heard anybody say, but I think it just intuitively strikes me as as maybe helpful. And that is the idea is to take our coarse mind, that is all kind of this bee's nest of mental afflictions and neuroses and troubles, obscurations and so forth, and dissolve this into something that is relatively pure, not primordially pure, not enlightened, but not bad, right? The substrate consciousness, by nature luminous, although obscured, you know, blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual, to release it into that, you know, and to dwell there as kind of a halfway house, halfway station on the way to something deeper. As one attends to one's teacher, whoever that may be, whether it's this one here, or any other teacher that you might have a relationship with now or later, something that strikes me as maybe a good halfway, and that is as you visually attend to a teacher. Again, this one, I could be a parrot. It really doesn't matter, but a sentient being. To recognize something, if you think it's true, then actually view it this way, and that is all the appearances you're seeing, the visual appearances, the appearance of sound, it's pretty much what you get. We can shake hands, it would be tactile, but right now it's just it's an audio-visual. That whatever appearances are rising. You see them for what they are. They are arising in the space of your mind. They're not coming from outside. Their location, so to speak, is in the space of your mind. Nowhere else. And they'll dissolve back into the space of your mind. They arise from the space of your mind, but that's, that's true. And I think physicists, neuroscientists would all agree, well, space of mind or whatever, they're not coming from the object, right? And so that, for starters. But then, of course, as we engage with anybody, a teacher or anybody else, but here, emphasis on the teacher, we're not only getting an audiovisual, the appearances, but there are also thoughts. The teacher is this way, the teacher is this. And then we have this set of characteristics. Maybe virtues, flaws, maybe a mixture. Uh, and the te- that's the kind of teacher that, that I'm engaging with, or learning from, or not learning from, whatever. But then to be aware of another obvious fact. And that is all of those ideas, all those concepts, they too are present only in your own substrate in your own space of your mind, and they, too, emerge only from the space of your mind. They didn't get transmitted through space. Ideas don't go through space, right? The, the ideas, the evaluations, the beliefs, the assumptions, the criticisms, whatever, they're all arising from your own space. And so everything that you know about your, your teacher, let's say, I just use the word teacher, everything about your teacher is everything, the visual, the conceptual, everything, all of that exists for you nowhere other than your own space. That's it. And so as we are seeking to release even the conventional sense of a sentient being for ourselves, then when the teacher comes to mind to try to develop an authentic relationship, to release even the conventional sense of the teacher as a sentient being, and that is whatever thoughts come up, just release them back into the space of the mind, because as long as one is engaging with the teacher as a sentient being existing out there inherently, then that reinforces. It just has to. That reinforces the reification of yourself as a sentient being. And now, how are you going to practice Dokshin when you're reifying yourself and reifying your teacher? Oh, and now, I, but, I, but, I, but, I, but I'm a Buddha. How's that going to work out? So we see we're not, this is, I think it's a, a slender but walkable middle way here. It's very clear, is it not? There's no I, I, idolizing here. And I think that happens a lot. You know, there's no adoration, all those words. It's not like you know, an infatuation or what have you. It's just saying, that's not this path. This path is cutting right through, at least to the substrate consciousness. So at least I'm seeing everything that comes to mind. When I bring to mind the teacher, it's all taking space in my mind, which means it's my vision. Now, might it have a commonality with other people's vision? Of course. And on a conventional level, it might be true. Of course, we're not delusional. It's not like every idea we have about other people, teacher or anybody else, that it's all delusional. That's silly. You know. But the mere fact that there may be consensus, you, you may talk with another person, oh, I have this idea, this is my evaluation. And then if another person agrees, it's ever so easy to think, aha, now that's, that's true. Now that's inherently true. That's objectively true. And now what have do you done? You've just reified yourself and the other. And now you're going to, do point, now you're going to receive point out instructions? While maintaining the same reified sense of self. So, that's what I would suggest in this context of Dzogchen. I would suggest don't try to view your guru, if you, whoever your guru is, it's not my business really, but whoever your guru might be, a Lama, a teacher, a mentor, whoever it is, for this practice of Dzogchen, don't try to visualize as pure. For sage regeneration, yeah, you dissolve it in emptiness and everything is visualization. Yourself, the mandala, the deities, the guru, the yidam, everything is visualized, right? Because it's, chum, it's something fabricated, something you create. It's very skillful means. But Dzogchen is not doing that. It's not fabricated. It's not modifying. It's not making up. It's just releasing everything that is in the way between your awareness and realization of Rigpa. It's just releasing it. So it's not trying to substitute something else. So I thought of this analogy. I kind of liked it. And that is, the guru is like a pane of glass. like just a clean pane of glass. And then we come to the pane of glass, and then we may throw a, hand of, a handful of chalk dust on it. Nice white chalk dust, right? And the guru is so wonderful, wonderful, so blah, blah, and then we give a lot of positive adjectives. White, oh, this is a wonderful person, really like, very nice, very sweet, very compassionate, whatever. Positive, right? And then you take a, a handful of dust dust and throw that, oh, the is OK. Okay. Not bad, kind of okay, you know, really. I mean, take it or leave it. You're neutral. And then you reach down and take a handful of coal dust and throw that on the pane of glass. Oh, the guru's got some major problems here. I think we need some major, major corrections are needed. The guru's really not much good. Not big disappointment, you know? But where's all the dust coming from? Whether it's white or whether it's gray or it's black, it's all coming from your own mind. And all of them are obscuring, even the positive one. Your guru's just like, you know, Whatever. Positive, positive, super positive. Most brilliant teacher in the whole world. Great. But it's still a sentient being. So that's just more white chalk dust. And so you're not seeing through the mirror. You're not seeing through the pane of glass. You're just seeing the various colorations of dust that you're projecting. And all of that is taking place in the space of your own mind. And all of that is going to be obscuring your own nature. So as much as possible, for yourself, first of all, you see the parity here. The the symmetry, the parity, right? It's not setting the group on some high pedestal, oh, he or she is so pure, I'm so lowly, but I hope one day I'll be like that person. It's not, it's just, there's nothing of that at all, right? It's just releasing the whole bit. You find this so strongly in Dzogchen of just, all of our perceptions are delusional. They're just all delusional, you know, within that context. They're just relative to Rikpa, this is all delusional. It's all fabrications of our own mental afflictions and karma and so forth. What we perceive is what our minds allow us to perceive given our karmic propensities, our habituations, our mental afflictions, our virtues and limitations of virtues and so forth, but it's all an inside job. And so to be able to just release that without having to pretend to anything, because I'm not very good at pretending myself, which is pretty straight, you know? But if we can just release all the conventional inwardly, release it outwardly, the relative, sentient being, sentient being, and then not try to visualize yourself. Oh, I think I'm a Buddha. I think oh, maybe I'm a Dharmakaya. Oh, I think rip is coming. You know, not try to concoct something. But also when looking at the guru, saying, like, oh, I think he's Dharmakaya. Oh, I think Padmasambhava. Yeah, definitely possible. I think the, I think the mustache. You know? <laughs> you know, not doing that either. It's this. Once you've released the sense of the guru is a sentient being, any kind, brilliant, fantastic, neurotic mean-spirited arrogant humble whatever black gray or white dust it's all dust right once you've released that you don't have to then come running in and say and now you're a buddha but just see what's left just see what's left right so no pretense nothing artificial for yourself because you're not releasing your mind and then visualizing rupa as if that were possible you're not doing that then you miss the whole show right so just what's left when you release your mind into space, every aspect of your mind, thoughts, memories, everything, just like that, what's left? Well, on a relative level, when, substrate consciousness, that would be a big improvement. That would be definitely an upgrade, right? But likewise for the guru. Whatever. So the space of the mind, you think of the guru, you visualize the guru, and then, then you could just release your guru into space. And now what's left? Well, at least substrate, or yeah, substrate. Release yourself, substrate consciousness. Release the guru, substrate. At least that. you know. But if you can actually cut through, if there's some actual insight into the lack of inherent nature, then all the better. Release even the conventional sense of self, even the conventional s- of self as sentient being. Release even the conventional sense of other, the guru, as sentient being, and then just see what comes up. And that, that I think, that strikes me as very clean. Utterly in accordance with Dzogchen, and it's not leaving things the status quo, it is well, you a really smart guy who teaches articulate or whatever you think, you know, it's not leaving it there because then you're stuck. Then it's not Dzogchen. and it's not much of anything else either. Maybe it's shamatha, kinda, you know. So that thought might be helpful, because you think the other one just too fraught with difficulties and unresolved questions and real challenges that are not, maybe not, necess- not, not so necessary. A visualizing guru as this and that and that. You know. So please find a comfortable position. We'll go to the practice. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. when it comes to letting your awareness rest in its own place, you may remain motionless, aware of whatever thoughts, memories and so on come and arise in the space of the mind, without being being moved by them, observing them as if, from the perspective of the substrate consciousness or your best approximation, there's one method. And the other method is simply releasing your mind into space, letting it dissolve away into that objectless expanse without trace, and see what's left over when you've released your mind, your sentient being's mind, completely. So we continue for, with this citation from the Tantra of the Lamp of Primordial Consciousness. Lord of Mysteries, which is a synonym for Vajrapani. Lord of Mysteries, the revelation of the Dharmakaya exists independent upon your body. So brief commentary. It's not that the Dharmakaya or Rikpa itself exists independent upon your body but the, the revelation of it, you're identifying it, occurs independence upon your body. Its locus is the core of your heart. Its clarity is the clarity issuing out from your eyes. So commentary, you see the reference here to the hollow crystal kati channel with its origin in the heart and its flowering in the two eyes. The Buddha dwells inside your heart and though it is enclosed by the body of flesh and blood, it is not covered or cloaked. Which is to say that it's unimpeded, unobscured. Thus, unobscured by the body, it is clearly, unobstructedly present in the three times. That is the unborn and undying quality of your awareness. See if you can release utterly to that dimension of your awareness. Continue. It is unobstructively present, unobscure, unobscured by the five bodies of signs—that simply the five elements of earth and so on. This is the dimensionless quality of the body of the Buddha. In terms of action, it is unobstructively present, unobscured by the latent propensities of virtue or vice as the luster of primordial consciousness has no outside or inside. This is the non-dual quality in relation to objects and primordial consciousness. Without being obscured by the faults of darkness, it is unobstructedly present. And finally, Lord of mysteries, spontaneity is present in the core of your heart as an aggregate of luminosity of your own awareness. It is the unceasing basis of appearances for everything. Since your awareness issues forth from your eyes, forms appear so that they are seen unceasingly. Since your awareness issues forth from your nose, smells are unceasingly sensed. The awareness of one who senses smells is the Dharmakaya. Due to your awareness issuing forth, the male and female genitals come into contact and joy unceasingly arises. The awareness of one who experiences joy is also the Dharmakaya. Know its nature. Oh, so. so once again, the, the obscuration that is kind of like the final seal, the final guardian that veils the nature of pristine awareness is this reification, the grasping to true existence. As long as that's there, uh, then Rikpa cannot shine through that. Uh, I remember a uh, delightful report somebody made either last year or the year before. (coughs) It was a man, and he was having a non-lucid dream. And in the dream, somebody appeared to him and said, do you know this is a dream? Somebody else else said it to him. At that point, when he's being challenged in that way, uh, if he'd reified the person who said it, thinking he's a real person, then he, then he would probably say, well, no, it, no, it's not. Why do you say that? Let's talk about it. You know, But he didn't do that. In fact, that was a pointing out and an instruction he received from his own mind to his mind in the dream, and he received it, and he became lucid. Very cool. I get to hear a lot of cool stories. But again, if he'd been reifying himself, reifying the, 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 per, the person giving him pointing out instructions, then it would have been all for nothing. So, to really kind of wrestle with our own—not somebody else, not some kind of theoretical construct, but just our own predisposition, our tendency, our habit for uh, reification—then I found these these insights from modern physics in the light of the teachings of Madhyamaka enormously helpful. And it really reminds me of these marvelous conversations we had, or, that is, I was listening and I was translating, especially between Anton Seilinger and His Holiness. Just finding that this, among these two brilliant people, uh, this deep sense of resonance, that I think we're really getting at the same thing, but from totally different perspectives. I mean, it truly is thrilling. And so... Thank you. Um... I'd like to pick up there, but first with a comment from one of you. Uh, no name, but it's a, this is something if you want to make a teacher really happy, write a comment like this. It's not praise, it's taking a statement, an assertion, or an idea, a hypothesis that I propose, and then running with it. You know, like I'm the quarterback, I throw the ball, and then somebody just runs with it, you know, in ways that I have not suggested. Um, that's a lot of fun. So you remember the kind of, the, as I recall, The kind of the final point made last night is if this vision, this vision of John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking and so forth, of the universe being fundamentally one of information and semantic information, if that's foundational, and all of the these constructs of space, time, matter, energy, mind, and everything else are emerging out of information, then again you can't just have information all by itself. It just doesn't make any sense, you know. Isolated inherently existent information actually makes no sense whatsoever that it could be somehow self-enclosed, right? Kind of obvious. And so just a tiny, tiny bit reiterate, if this information has to refer to something, you have to, have to be informed about something and somebody has to be informed. So I made that point and that the three are mutually interdependent. You take away one and the other two vi- disappear. Now that very fact, right there, that simple fact, that you have three things. I mean, these are really three things, aren't they? There's something... Like there's Marielena, I give some information about Marielena, so she's the object. Marielena has brown hair, so she's over there. And there is that information, you know, and then I transmitted it. Or, yeah, like that, right? Well, Or I I look over there and I'm making a measurement and I'm getting brown hair, I'm getting information and I'm aware of it, so out there there is brown hair, and I'm making a measurement, I'm getting information, of brown hair, uh, ma- manifesting in an appearance, and I'm aware of that appearance. But now, if there were no appearance, uh, no transmission of information there, then I, as the one who's informed about Marielena's hair, would not exist. That uh, person would, get it, would, not be in, would not be there. But also, if there's no information about the color of her hair, then that doesn't exist either. The three are mutually independent. But the very fact that you can remove one, and the other two instantly vanish, that point right there already indicates they're not inherently existent. Because if they were, you take out one, the other two remain standing. Right? But it's the same thing, and we find it everywhere. If there's no left, then right is immediately vanished and for all the other polarities. If there's no virtue, then there's no non-virtue, and so forth and so on. But So that's what I said. That was a brief reiteration from yesterday. But now let's see how the anonymous thinker takes this further. Just an idea, an afterthought of the class, and how about if we take, take in another element to the equation, namely informant, data, and informed one. So informant means a person. So I say, Elena, I have gray hair. So I'm the informer, she's the informant, and there's the data, I have, I have gray hair. So we have these three now, another triad. The instrument, the gadget tool, with which the information is observed or communicated, and without that without which there is no information to inform, we have infor- in, in, informant data and informed one. Okay, so but the connecting thread is uh, he's giving like a, te- a, te- a telephone line here between the informant and the informed one. There's a, a, once again a triad. So like a microscope or a telescope or consciousness, which without without which there is no information to share to begin with. So that was my English is a little bit difficult, but I think you get the message, that if you're giving information, you're making a measurement, so you, you, what color hair do you have? And then you get that information, right? But if you're conveying information from one subject to another, right, then we, then we have the informer, the, the data or information, and then the informant, and there's no informant unless that person is being informed about something. There's no data unless it's being transmitted. There's no information, and likewise no informer if there is no information being transmitted, so it's the same thing. Now, John Searle, who is a, certainly a very bright philosopher, he commented at this point, I think, a very sharp insight, and that is that we ever so often speak of information in, in our computers. How much, how much information does your hard drive hold? We say it all the time, and we say all the time. There's information in a computer. I have, I have all my photos there, I have my music, I have files, and so forth and so on, lots of information stored. In fact, oh, it's maxed out. My hard drive is maxed out. I can't take any more information into it. Right? And so it's, we speak that way, and there's nothing wrong with speaking that way. But now exactly in what manner is information in your computer? And how did it get there? And his point, which I totally affirm, I think, he, I think he's spot on, is that in your computer there is no information in the same way that there, is, there are silicon chips or electricity or other kinds of chemicals. They're there. Information in a manner of speaking. But the information is there only because you put it there but it exists only relative to your consciousness. In other words, an in- inanimate entity cannot all by itself put information into another inanimate entity, because that information would have no reference. No one would be sending it, no one would be receiving it, it would just be an electromagnetic field just going from here to there, like bo. And that was just, there was no information there, it was just an electromagnetic field going out. So this turns out to be quite deep, but I think this is a very good insight and I'd like to, to go deeper into that same material. If I can find my cell phone. But this is not just an intellectual trip. It's that there is clearly, and for very good reason, a very broad consensus in the scientific community that there's an absolutely real physical world out there, for very good reason. There's nothing foolish about it at all, right? But Buddhism here, Buddhism as a, a, a mode of contemplative inquiry, it's offering itself, presenting itself, the Buddha himself presenting the Dharma as a knowledge tradition. Religions in the West are not considered to be knowledge traditions. They often say, what faith do you belong to? It's good English. I belong to the Christian faith. I belong to the Muslim faith. Fine, because they're really considered to be faith and not knowledge. When I was at Stanford years ago, I tried to introduce to the Dean of of Religion or something like that, that actually contemplative inquiry could give rise to knowledge, you know. And he was just having none out of it, just none of it, you know. No way, and after actually no would. They, they would not consider that. Or when I was at UC Santa Barbara and religious stuff, I'm not criticizing anything. Can I just say this? It's okay? That it's not where they are. I was attending a graduate seminar just sitting in as a fellow lecturer, professor, and there was a really good professor there. He was so smart, really smart. And he was, a, he was an expert on medieval mysticism, I'm quite interested. So John Scottis, Eryujin and so forth, really smart, he wrote some excellent articles. I mean, really, they're simply really good. And he was giving his, his leading this graduate seminar to his graduate students, and I asked him, well, because he's talking about these incre- incredible insights, that again, I kind of resonated with Chen and so forth, and I asked him, what were the experiences that gave rise to these reports? And he said, well, we don't ask that question. You know, we just, and that's fair enough, that's, that's not the question they're asking. Because religions in the, our modern Western world are simply not regarded as tru, um, wisdom tradition, insight traditions, that you gain liberation by, by knowing. And so Buddhism is. You don't get to be liberated just by faith, not in this lifetime anyway. And so there's, there's something that's presenting itself as a, as a knowledge tradition. And coming into the 21st century, I think we need to look around, is, is there any other competition, or are we coming into a, an empty room? And to a large extent, when when Buddhism came from India to Tibet, kind of an empty room. I mean, they had shamanism and so forth, but they had no great, highly developed, with sophistication, whole body of literature and so forth, a knowledge tradition. So it was kind of easier, in a way. Whereas we have a vast knowledge tradition in the West, and the knowledge tradition is primarily science. So to bring that into dialogue, I think is kind of, if we're not doing that, then how is that not simply avoidance? as if the other one doesn't matter at all or is irrelevant. So happily, and this wasn't true, it wasn't true a century ago, it wasn't even true 50 years ago. Finally, there's a branch of modern science which is absolutely cutting edge by some of the most brilliant people in the field that is looking the most deeply into the nature of the physical universe. And lo and behold, there it is in the last 20 years or so. They're making statements like, whoa, this is looking like... What was being stated in Buddhism a long time ago. So let's look a little bit further just to see how they developed this. So, where to start? I think that's a good one. So, this is just a direct quote from Meditations of a Buddhist skeptic According to quantum physics, information lies at the core of the universe, which requires for its existence the participation of an observer who acquires and records information. So, that's kind of familiar. At a macroscopic level, the universe is fundamentally an information-processing system from which the appearance of matter emerges at a higher level of reality. In other words, its derivative. At the microscopic level, each, sens- each conscious observer is an information pros- processing and replicating system. This is from John Wheeler. In both cases, it is semantic information that is crucial. And this again is it's meaningful informi- information that has a referent. It's, it's referring to something, right? So our theories concerning the nature and evolution of the universe are mental constructions based on information produced by observations. In quantum physics, the material-centric view of the universe, that is, everything boils down to matter, or space-time, matter, energy, has been supplanted by an empirical-centric view, one based on experience, saturated by information. This shift is at least as far-reaching in, in its consequences as the shift from a geocentric to a heliocentric view of humanity's place in the cosmos. Now, it gets more interesting. So that, that, is a fu- it's, that is a revolution. If it's true, that is a revolution because it's fundamentally different than what's been believed since the time of Galileo. Right? It is a revolution and it changes everything. You, you recall from Stephen Hawking, he said that the past, that we can choose our own past, the past exists only in theory, it arises relative to our measurements, but it's not already there waiting just to be plucked out of time. If that's true, then I think that immediately, to my mind, it immediately implies that whatever past arises to you relative to your system of measurement, your observations and so on, has to be empty of inherent nature. Has to be. If it has no existence independently of your measurement but rises relative to your measurement, it is true with respect to your measurement. But apart from that, unrelated to that, completely empty. So that changes everything, in terms of our whole view of the history of the cosmos. That Empty of inherent nature. From the perspective of quantum physics, the past has no existence except as it is recorded in the present. Our decisions about what to observe or measure and how to interpret our data play fundamental roles in determining what kind of a universe emerges in our experience as being objectively real. This is the strange loop, in quotation marks, as John Wheeler called it, in which the physical world gives rise to observers, which in turn conceive of the physical world in which they emerged. It is a very, very strange loop. Is, I don't like being redundant. Is, it, is that already clear? Have you or would you like some clarification of that? The strange loop? Clarification? clarification? OK. Because you know, some, uh, some people have read all my books, and they're saying, oh, yeah, but I've read this three times in your book. You know, I, don't, I don't want to just be redundant. Okay, so there's at least one person. So the strange loop, I, I do find it immensely fascinating. And again, if this were not immediately relevant to Dzogchen, this is not just kind of like a little tutorial in physics. We have no time for that. But if by, how do you say, wrestling with, in a very happy way, kind of like a friendly wrestle, to bring these ideas and say, might this be true? Does this relate to Madhyamaka? Well, Madhyamaka definitely relates to Dzogchen, and it's the final unveiling. Re- remove that one, and then you're ready for pointing out instructions. So the strange loop is that scientists have been making measurements for quite some time now. This given rise to this extremely sophisticated history of the universe, going back about 13.8 billion years, all of the measurements made in the present moment with specific types of measurement, and then we have a five-billion-year-old planet, we have life, maybe roughly 3.5 3. billion years, and then on and on, the evolution of life 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens sapiens, and so there's a whole story there, and anybody who knows science has at least the rudiments of that story, but the whole story, the whole narrative is based upon measurements made in the present, and there are very specific questions with very specific measurement systems, and it's, it's really good science. So this, there's nothing like, oh, just make up your own thing. There's very good science with preci- precise measurements. So re- relative to those, to those questions, then the universe does is about 13.8 billion years old, life about 3.5 billion, and human existence about 200,000. Right? Which implies then that the person making the measurements and that person's parents and that person's parents go back and are part of the story. And that is that, you, that you're able to make these measurements because you, as a human being, evolved from lower primates, lower, 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 back to you know single-celled organisms, what have you. So this history exists only relative to your measurements now, but you, as a human being, did evolve in the way that you said you did. It's a strange loop. And that is, if you had not made those measurements, that history would not exist anywhere. And that's the big deal. It wasn't out there just waiting to be discovered. It rises relative to that system of measurement. But now that you've made that measurement, now you can say you as a human being arose from within that story. Right? So we see a strange loop. Well, have you ever heard of a strange loop in Buddhism called the 12 links of dependent origination? No. And you're looking, yeah, but where did it begin? Where did it begin? And where did this begin? You know, because the story comes in the 20th century. That's when this whole 13.8 billion year story came out. So we can say, well, well, we we can find the scientists who came up with it. They made these measurements, they made the story, and so forth. Wonderful scientists, brilliant, and so forth. And so the story began in the 20th century. But it began 13.8 billion years ago. And both are true, but that means they have only conventional existence. So, if this were made by some person who'd just been smoking a lot of dope, I think that's a really weird theory. <laughs> and it is a weirdly, really weird theory. But it was made by some of the most brilliant physicists living today or in the very recent past, like John Wheeler. So, let's see where we might take that. And of course, when it comes to time, if you read Nagarjuna's Mula Madhyamaka Karika, his, pre- uh, his great treatise on emptiness, uh, which has been well translated by Jay Garfield. Um, among the myriad phenomena that he analyzes, to see are they empty or not, one of them is time. Time is one of the things he investigates. And of course, the conclusion is, time has no inherent inherent nature. It is empty. Of inherent nature arises only relative to conceptual designation, conceptual framework. So this is not off the mark. You can imagine then, or perhaps get some intimation, when Anton was bringing forth insights and so forth right in this area. How excited His Holiness got! How could you come to that conclusion and not know anything about Nagarjuna's mula Karika? You know, it was truly thrilling, and I think that was probably the first time His Holiness had met, had met John Bell, who was a very famous physicist, way back 1973, and he met oh uh, another one that was very well known. But I, in terms of really substantial conversation with with uh, you know qualified interpreters, because Jimba and I teamed up. So they were really getting the information. That might have been the first time, and it was really quite extraordinary. So, on a macroscopic level, scale, this shifts, this implies a shift from a material centric. So, in the antiquated materialistic perspective, whoops, just lost it. Come back. There we go. in the antiquated materialistic perspective on human existence and reality as a whole, the word meaning has no significance. And and this is pointed out many times, and and, and it's just true, that if you're looking at a world that is just made out of space-time matter-energy, and it's just evolving according to the laws of physics, you don't speak, well, what does it all mean? As Stephen Weinberg said, well, it doesn't mean anything. And then, out of purely inorganic processes coming together, in a volcanic fissure in the ocean or whatever it may be, if organic life somehow emerges from the RNA and so forth and so on and amino acids and you have the first living organism and it just happened by circumstances coming together and then it evolved, you say, but what does it all mean? The evolution from single-celled organisms all the way up through the primates and us. And the answer doesn't mean anything. It was just laws of chemistry, biology coming together, and there it is. So the, wor- the word meaning has no meaning. In biology, the word meaning, what does it mean? Doesn't mean anything, right? Because it's just matter, space, time, matter, energy. So it has no significance. Whereas in this view, meaning is, is fundamental. Because if the ground is information, and that information is semantic, then it has meaning. It has it has a referent. At long last, centuries after the disenchantment of the, of nature, which means the removal of, of mind from nature. Meaning is restored to the universe in which humans and all other sentient beings play a vital participatory role. We are home at last. So finally, the the universe can be said to have meaning because means right in the ground. It's not a little add-on. It's not merely a subjective projection. The universe is coming from a field of meaning. But again, to say the universe as if there's one, well, wait a minute. How many are there? How many observers are there? And doesn't this immediately imply that in fact there are multiverses, one for every sentient being? Including cockroaches and worms and so forth, they too are getting information from the universe and so forth. So it's, again, it's not anthropocentric, like all of this was created for, for for man. You know, very very Judeo-Christian kind of thing. Well, this isn't, and, and Buddhism has never been anthropocentric. It's always been centri- being centric. Right? So we go on a little bit further. In the in the if the information processing model of the individual body mind is correct. The subject expectancy effect makes perfect sense for the first time. Uh, that's, I didn't coin that term, but the subject expectancy. It's called placebo effect, which of course is misleading, but everybody knows the placebo effect. And that's when a person in a position of authority, a doctor, a nurse, somebody in the medical profession, uh, and actually can be anything. I corresponded with one man in Italy who's doing the really hardcore science there, fascinating science on the placebo, placebo effect how it works and so forth you don't need to give a sugar tablet you could give a mudra or you could show a card really you, you know what, what's the big deal about a sugar tablet you know it's if i show you this card that your migraines will go away but you have to say harvard is the best harvard you know whatever you know but But if the person believes you, obviously that was kind of silly, but if the person believes you, just look at this card, or have you noted, you know, I'm from Harvard Medical School or what have you, and I know this will work for you, uh, it can be really anything. It doesn't have to be a substance. It can be a gesture, anything. And if the person listening gets the information and has that confidence, that trust, expectation, and desire, I finally found the person who can heal me, then, I mean, it's happened so many times, it's an established empirical fact, the person may very well, not, in, not invariably, but may very well, that thought may actually trigger precisely the neurophysiological processes in the body to bring about the expected end. Uh, it's very sophisticated. It's not just feeling better or your, your headaches go away. Uh, in one case, it was Parkinson's, and, a, and, and a, a substance that turned out to be a placebo was given to somebody, and the person was told, this will really help you. And taking the placebo and believing this will really help you The person took it and consequently uh, that person's brain started generating a much higher degree of endogenous dopamine. And the symptoms of Parkinson's are related to a, a deficiency of the production of endogenous, which means built in from your own brain, dopamine and got relief from the symptoms. So that's not just feeling better the belief that this would this would and of course a person doesn't need to know about dopamine or what part of the brain it does it you don't need to know anything about anatomy whatsoever right but if you believe if you believe that belief this will make me feel better this will reduce my symptoms of parkinsons and it's an uninformed belief but it's that belief this will do it this will make my parkinsons diminish that information and the expectation that it will deliver the goods triggers precisely the neural mechanisms to bring about the anticipated and hoped-for end. Now, there is no material materialistic explanation for that. I've asked world experts, and as I said, we've, ask, we've stopped asking the question because we just don't even know how to start with it. And quite rightly so. They, they don't. What would you do? This is if your body is fundamentally made out of particles and energy, matter and energy. If that's what's really there, that's fundamentally who you are. You're a big, massive molecules and electricity, then the, um, you know, the placebo effect doesn't actually make any sense at all. It sounds like m- magic. But on the, microsco- the microscopic level, if you as an individual, that is your body, your body-mind actually, is an integrated system, if it's not fundamentally boiling down to matter and emergent properties, like mind coming out of, out of brain, but if your whole presence here, your embodiment, your personhood, is fundamentally a Information processing system, for which matter is derivative, energy is derivative, and you can't have an information system, a processing system without consciousness. That is built into information, as we said before. Then if you if that's who you fundamentally are, and I say, Marta, if you take this, you know, your your, your complexion will become much rosier, much brighter, and so forth. It's, it's wonder, wonderful for the complexion, you know? And she believes it then that may very well trigger exactly the mechanisms in her skin to bring about that effect. Why? Because I gave her information, information from an, from an from informer to an informant, this will work, and the information triggers the matter and energy activities that are needed to bring about the expected result. Now that suddenly, for the first time, makes sense. And why she doesn't even need to know anything about skin or the chemicals of the skin or so forth. All she needs to know is this will make your complexion much rosier or something like that. You know. And so that's the only intelligible explanation I've ever read or heard about. To actually make it intelligible that they're not just magic or weird or go-figure or I don't know what. Um, and it comes, I created that theory, but it comes from John Wheeler and it's just taking his macrocosmic theory of the universe as an information processing system. and then, But, you know, I've been around for a while. As above, so below. Man is the measure of all things. And so if we really are dealing with microcosm, macrocosm here, then there may be some strong parallels. But what's true of, especially if we slip right over to you are the center of your universe and that universe is inextricably tight because you are in the center of it. If there are true statements about your universe which will transform as you move along the path to enlightenment, then if there are statements about your universe, then it would be quite natural that those will be also true statements about you as the nucleus of that universe. So it puts an entirely different spin on placebo effect. I ran that by an... an, an, it It didn't elicit any interest when I ran it by one of the scientists I engaged with. I thought it was an interesting speculation, but then it just stopped, didn't go anywhere. So the power of expectation activates the information processing system of a human being, which then triggers the appropriate, complex, electrochemical processes in the body that bring about the expected change. So that's a little application then to our own individual existence, how that could actually make sense. But now i like to go to a paper by written, co-authored by Anton Seilinger, and another fellow named Bruckner, and they caution that this hypothesis, exactly the same one, that everything boils down to information, does, and I'm quoting, does not imply that reality is no more than a pure, subjective human construct. So, this is so Majamika. And that is, on the one hand, Anton Sandler make it very clear, he's completely rejecting metaphysical realism. He's a quantum physicist that there's a real world absolutely out there and we're just mapping onto it and plucking it out, you know, plucking out of space-time and getting a good picture. He's completely dissed that. He said, it's meaningless. And as E.O. Wilson himself said, we have no way of calibrating. If we come up with a theory, how does it correspond to that objective reality? Even he says that. And Anton says, well, that's because it's a meaningless proposition. So there's what in Buddhism is called the extreme of substantialism. It's really absolutely out there. right? But then you know the other extreme. It's the extreme of nihilism. Or we could just paraphrase that the extreme of solipsism, that reality is just whatever you think it is. If you think you're just anything, if you think you're Santa Claus, well, then you're Santa Claus. If you think that the inverse square, that there's an inverse cube law of gravity, or if you think that water falls up, well, in my world, the water falls up, except for no, it doesn't. You can't just make it up as you go. In other words, there's still a place for legitimate, sophisticated, rigorous science to come up with true statements. It's not that. Well, just make up anything you like. You know? So they found a middle way here. It's quite slender. Because metaphysical realism, on the one hand, kind of makes really common sense, but then it turns out to be so problematic, you never see it. But then you say, well, then if there's no objective reality, then it must be, just make it up as you go. because you no, not that either. Something in between. So they caution that this... Oops, keep on doing that. I Just lost it again. I hope I didn't diss it. Aye, aye, aye. Ah, oh, boy. <laughs> temperamental. Temperamental cell phone. I just lost the file. It was a pretty good file, too. Aye, aye, aye. It's gone. Oh, maybe I can get it back. No. Son of a gun. It just erased itself. Well, that's the breaks. Oh, but there was such a good quote there. Doggone it. I wonder if I can retrieve it somehow. It just went into the trash. Everybody settle your mind as natural state. Should be in the trash. Come on. Okay, I found it, ha. So this does not imply that reality is no more than a pure subjective human construct, just a figment of your imagination. For From our observations, we are able to build up objects with a set of properties that do not change under variations of modes of observation or description. That's true. And that is, you can walk over to a, a a chair, and you can look at it. It looks pretty firm, doesn't it? And then you can reach out, and it is firm. And then I can invite Gachi over, see, would you see whether it's firm? You don't need to, but is it firm? And we can invite other people, and is it firm? And we say, well, there's an invariant here. That wasn't just me. And some people may touch it with a stick to find it's firm, and other people with a hand, and so forth and so on. But we then we see, even though we're each of us in the center of our own universe, there are these invariants that I feel I, I find it to be fairly soft, and so does Gachi, and so forth and so on. And the immediate implication. Outside of the country, well, that's because it's really absolutely there. And what he's saying is, no, it's just that it is an intersubjective invariant. An intersubjective invariant. It simply is the same across different frames of reference. But that doesn't then mean, therefore, it's independent. So if you draw a certain conclusion, you draw a certain conclusion, and then you ask other people, and they agree with you, right? does that imply now, that the truth you agree upon exists independently of any of you. And the natural assumption for most people is, yeah, yeah, we, we confirmed. That's third-person observation, third-person perspective. I checked, he checked, we checked. Now it's true. It's objectively true. It's independently true because we are all looking at the same thing. And what Anton is saying here is, no, it's just an intersubjective variant. In other words, it's empty, but it is an invariant. So these invariants with respect to these, these are invariants with respect to these variations, predictions based on any such specific invariance may then be checked by anyone, and as a result, we may arrive at an intersubjective agreement about the model, thus lending a sense of independent reality to the mentally constructed objects. We do that all the time, right? If you see something, is it only me or is it only me or do you see it too? If it's only me, then it's probably oh, it's probably it's probably just probably just a delusion. It's an illusion. Probably something in my eye or something, or oh, it's just me, you know. When Khandula saw, you know, the car go by and she saw thousand arms Rezi, this is where this, this falls apart. She could, I'm sure she didn't, but she could have turned to the Tibetan right next to her and said, "I'm seeing thousand armed Rezi. What do you see?" <laughs> now was that because she's delusional? Well. She's one of my lamas, and no, she's not. Whether or not she's one of my lamas, she has incredibly pure vision, incredibly pure heart. That's what she saw. But if the person right next to her were another very pure soul, that person might say, "Yes, indeed, I saw too." You know. And then just down the row are a couple of ordinary people, and they say, "Oh, I saw the Dalai Lama. He was smiling." You know. So this is where Buddhism brings in a variant that is nowhere in sight, and that is that your own that you that your own perspective may shift and purify. And you will see things that are not delusional, that other people do not see. But if you find other people who share a, a, a common degree of purification, they may see it with you. There are so many cases, I can't remember the details of this, but there were two Tibetan yogis, two really accomplished yogis, stage generation yogis. Uh, this is an old story, so I don't remember the details that much. But as they were approaching each other, out, way out there on the highlands of Kham, on some trail, and one saw the other one as Chakrasambara, the other one saw the other one as Yamantaka. You know, they're coming, oh, here comes Chakrasamvara. oh, there's Yamantaka coming, coming, coming. You, know? you can imagine their, hand, their shaking hands would be quite an ordeal. <laughs> Put her there, and there, and there, and there. So, so. I find this so enormously resonant. If it were merely a curiosity, well, then, then it wouldn't be worth spending our time on it. But what if it's true? What if it's true? Yes, please. An invariant is something that is the same. Yeah, it doesn't vary. Yeah. And so if, if I looked at, at um, Maria Elena's hair and I saw it brown, and then you looked over there and said, no, no, it's gray. And then, and then Amy looks, no, 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 she's blonde. Well, it could conceivably happen. I mean, I guess, you know. But then that would be, an, that would be not an invariant because we're seeing it. We're just seeing different things. Whereas if you view from different perspectives, you know, and different people, and you come up with the same, then that's an invariant. And also, this is a big point in science. If you can measure something using different systems of measurement, like a quasar, might be observed with one type of telescope and then with another type of cell, a radio telescope and then another type of telescope. I'm no expert, but it happens. It does happen. And then, or there's one lab in Chile, Chile and another one in Hawaii, and they're making independent observations, maybe even using different, some, somewhat different equipment, but they're focusing on the same place. If they come up with an invariant, then what that gives them confidence of is that what they're seeing is not, as they say, not an artifact of their system of measurement. It's not simply a creation, a blip, noise created by their instrument, which then is just, you know, your own entirely subjective. So for the metaphysical realist, they would say, ah, that shows it's really there. Because we viewed it from Chile using this instrument, we viewed it from Hawaii, you know, one of the high mountains there. And so for the m- metaphysical realist, they would say, well, that, that shows it's really, really there. And what Anton and are saying is that simply now shows an, an, an invariant an intersubjective invariant, but it doesn't imply it was absolutely out there. It's very subtle, very interesting. In terms of the relationship microcosm-macrocosm, uh, this also triggered another old memory. and Because I, I, I so love going back to the Pali canon that we're not going way out there in Dzogchen and kind of wondering where, where, where did we leave Buddhism behind, you know? that in fact this is all of a piece, all entangled. You know? And it's a rather famous quote, and I'll give it, it's very short. It's from the Buddha, and here's the statement. It is in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and its mind, that I describe the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So again, man or human beings are the measure of all things in an anthropocentric universe, and that is here we are in the center of our universe as human beings, and he's saying, everything's here. This is kind of like everything is here. You are in the center. You have a human body. This means you'll be viewing a reality that is an anthropocentric reality, and then, you're, then you have neighbors who are also humans, so they'll also have an anthropocentric reality, and you find a lot of commonality. Even though there's no absolute objective reality there, there's a commonality, call it shared karma or what have you, that you're seeing things that are invariant. So a lot of people could say, what's there What's there in the middle of the, of the, of the, of the room? And most people would say, that's a video camera. It's an invariant. It doesn't mean it's absolutely there, but it means there's shared karma, shared visual, visual faculties and so forth. But the body being the measure of all things, everything, the origins of the universe, it does sound really quite resonant with that whole strange loop, you know coming that way. And I, I think there's just one more. So just a quickie. But it goes back to the theme that I raised with a lot of enthusiasm last night, and that is the notion that what if Dzogchen is not the unique possession of Buddhists? You know, if it were, it wouldn't bother me. I just feel very fortunate. You know. uh, but what if it's not? What if Buddhism is an authentic door by way of the Shravakayana, the Buddhist and so forth, and the culminating in Dzogchen. So you're coming in, it's really, you're starting with the Four Noble Truths, and you proceed along that path, and then the culmination of it is Dzogchen. Uh, and there it is. I mean, there's a lot of evidence. It really works. But what if that's not the only gateway? And so I won't just say everything over again that I said last night, but what if there's a gateway by way of Christianity, of Sufi, of Taoism? So multiple traditions, that's called the perennial philosophy, Aldous Huxley, and so forth, there's a convergence. Uh, but might there be a doorway in philosophy? Might there be some brilliant philosophy? And I have a couple in mind. I won't elaborate on that right now, but might philosophy be the gateway? And if you have a way of practicing actually converging in upon the same. And then what about science? What about science? Might that be a gateway, not even religious, but probing deeply after 400 years of you know just better and better physics better better physics galileo newton james clerk maxwell einstein heisenberg and then to john wheeler and just keep on probing more and more deeply because these are clearly there is a deepening there it's not just going around in circles newton is beyond galileo einstein's beyond newton john wheeler is going beyond einstein i mean there's clearly there is progress it's a deeper they're not just on the same same level so what if that were the case? And is there any reason to believe in Buddhism that there may be multiple doorways outside of just going straight into Dzogchen practice? And here's a statement here. I, I, it's quoted in uh, A Spacious Path of Freedom by Kamachame. We'll read this and then I'll finish. And this is from Padmasambhava, but cited in this text by Kamachame. It starts, Astonishing the ongoing cognizance and luminosity called the mind exists but does not exist even as a single thing. It arises for it manifests as samsara and nirvana and as a myriad of joys and sorrows. It is that It is asserted for it is asserted according to the twelve yanas. It is a label for it is named in unimaginable ways. Just an incredible array of Ar- array of ways. Some people call it the ultimate reality of the mind, cittata. Some call it, some non-Buddhists call it the atman. It really caught my attention. Some non-Buddhists call it the atman. The shravakas call it personal identitylessness. The Chittamatrans call it the mind. Some people call it the middle way, or maj- ma- majamaka. Some call it the perfection of wisdom, some give it the name Tathagata Garba, some give it the name Mahamudra, some give it the name ordinary consciousness, some call it the soul bindu, some give it the name Dharmadhatu. and some give it the name the Alaya, the substrate. Yeah, the Alaya or substrate, which is quite interesting. So is he equating, now this is Patma Sambhava, it's the same man, is he equating, we've had so many conversations about this, is he equating the substrate with Dhammadhatu? Well, he makes so clear in so many other ways, absolutely not. You know, to realize that, you've just achieved shamatha, you've not become Buddha, right? But, there, but he says, some call it, some call it, you see, whatever Hindus, and there's a wide variety of Hindu schools, which refer to the Atman a lot, and the union of atman, brahman, and so forth, is he simply equating, saying flat out, it's the same, the same. Hindu notions of atman, and the notion of anatman, and the stravakayana, and the notions of mind, and Chittamatra and so forth, is he saying they're simply the same thing? Because some call it this, some call it that, some call it that. Um, don't think so. Don't think so. But then we have that lovely phrase, you've realized an aspect of Rikpa. You may receive pointing out instructions from a fine Lama like Soknya Rambuchea, Chukinyima Rambuchea, and other Lamas. And you may have really a, an opening, a cutting, really an opening, real, something really meaningful, something way out of the ordinary, that may be indeed the most meaningful experience you've had. Have you fully realized Rikpa? Almost certainly not. But have you ascertained or identified an aspect of Rikpa? Like, like picking up a scent. That's a scent. And then tracing it to its source. In the Hindu tradition, when they have some realization of Atman, is that the same as rikpa? Well, it depends on how you define it. But it might it be picking up the scent. That too is an aspect. And trace it to its source. In the Shravakayana, realizing the emptiness of your own self, is that the same as rikpa? No, but that's a scent. Follow it to its source. And here in quantum, quantum cosmology, we have this theory. If they just had practice, they, they're getting it conceptually, I think, to an amazing degree. If they had practice, and that theme, and this will be the final point, at 6.01, and I will not take long. But the final point, it really struck me this afternoon. The theme of the observer-participant, observer-participant, remember how many, how many times that came up? Uh, and they are shy of using the word consciousness, but this is their term. I didn't introduce it. The, the role of the observer-participant is fundamental to the universe, right? And now... Observer-participant. And now go right back. But now what's the nature of the observer? How would you know if you're just studying people's behavior or brain? That's not an observer. Behavior is behavior. It's not an observer. Brain is brain. It's not an observer. And likewise, a participant or an agent. How would you know if you're just studying the brain or behavior? The brain isn't an agent. They say it is, but there's no evidence for that. Well, have you, do you have any rec- recollection of turning awareness in upon the observer? And turning awareness in upon the agent. And might that not be the most realistic way, penetrating way, informative way, to actually gain insight into the nature of the observer participant, all the way perhaps right down to the ground. When it says that it's, we just read it today, that it's the Dharmakaya that's smelling the smells that you smell. The Dharmakaya, if you're enjoying the joys of sex, it's the Dharmakaya enjoying that joy of sex. And all the others. It's a Dharmakayath that's thinking your thoughts and so forth. Take your thought and now just trace it back to its source. Don't get stuck at the substrate consciousness, that's good, but keep on going. Any of these the smell of a rose, the thought of uh, having a dream, having a burst of anger, because not just virtuous ones, whatever it is, trace it back to its source. Trace back right back to its source. And it comes all the way down to the ground. And so that to my mind, as physicists, theoretical physicists come up with these brilliant theories, then historically, like Einstein himself came up with this brilliant theory, general relativity theory, that had predictive value, predictive ability. That is, it wasn't just a nice idea. It was mathematically incredibly sophisticated, and it made predictions. And one of the predictions it made was that uh, what was it? The I details. I think it's Mercury. Um, but it, it was simply this that When light comes near the sun, because of this massive gravitational field around the sun, the light traveling in a straight line would travel through the curved space around the sun. And that means, from our perspective, we would see it bend. Because the space it's traveling through is bent, therefore, even though it's going in a straight line, you'd see the light bend. And you can see that only during an eclipse. During an eclipse, it was a very specific measurement. They had to wait for the eclipse. And they, did. they had to wait four years for the eclipse. And they had to have all the right conditions. That One happened in, in Russia. They missed it. It was cloudy. A simple thing like that, cloudy, they can't observe it. But it happened in 1919. And there was a very specific prediction of exactly how much that light would bend, went around, and they could measure it, uh, bending around the sun. And when the measurement came back from Sir Arthur Eddington, great English physicist, it came back, it just, Blew their minds. Because here is this guy with a pencil and a paper, you know, and he predicted that. And overnight, Einstein became a world celebrity on the, on the par with Charlie Chaplin. You know. <laughs> I mean, literally. He was just a really brilliant physicist, you know, like Niels Bohr. Who's ever heard of Niels Bohr unless you really know physics? Or Lorentz or, or you know, Poincare. I mean, yeah, really cool. But suddenly, this guy with the funny hair, you know, it was just, he was thrown onto the international stage because people were so blown away by it that he's sitting in his room. He, was, when, when he, got, he had one of his, his um, jobs at university, uh, big one, I think it might have been Berlin, big one, really, the center, the hub, and he was asked, well, Professor Einstein, he's already eminent, what equipment do you need? We want to set up, you know, we want to be able to, for you to be do, do your full research, and so what kind of material, what kind of instruments and so forth do you need? And he said, well... I need a pad of paper and a pencil and a big waste paper basket. <laughs> and the big waste paper basket is for all the mistakes I make. And that was it. So that's what just enthralled the imagination of, especially Europe and America also, that had just recovered from an absolutely grotesque war, in which tens of millions of people died. They just never saw it coming, that it would be so absolutely grotesque, such carnage, unlike any war in history, because they had such efficient ways of killing people. And they were demoralized. They were shattered. They wondered about their own civilization, what, what has happened to us, that we could wipe out a whole generation of young men. You know, and it, was the, and it was all of them. It was the English, the French, the Austrians, the Germans, and so forth. And they're, still, they're just barely recovering from that. And there comes this international man who has made this incredible discovery. And it just inspired people. Like, maybe there's hope for us after all. You know. If this interesting and very nice man, if he could come up with this, then maybe we're smart enough you know, to be able to move ahead. So there it is. So we're finished with that for the time being. But I think Padma Sambhava has made his point that, yeah, there are multiple entries. And they, he didn't, they didn't have quantum mechanics back then, but might, he might have said, and some people call it, particip- uh, observer participancy. You know? So enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.